Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Fraser Brown, but you can think of me as a short Scottish Rob Zachney. And Rob, <laughs> if you're listening, I hope you appreciate that I didn't start this episode with my trademark hello, because I know it would upset you, and I'm sacrificing my brand for you. Uh, anyway, I'm joined this week by our wee Viking pal, Lorsworn Orders, TJ Hafer. Hello, TJ. Hello, hello. So, the strategy universe is a little bit busy at the moment. Uh, we've got the recent launch of both Stellaris Utopia and Europa Universalis Mandate of Heaven, as mm -hmm. well as betas for Dawn of War 3 and Steel Division Normandy 44. But let's forget all of that and get some <laughs> magic into our lives, because we're going to be talking about Crusader Kings 2 monks and mystics. Uh, in some ways, the latest expansion is sort of typical for CK2. There are lots of new event chains and new ways to interact with characters. But it's also a little bit strange, a little bit, as the title suggests, fantastical. Uh, there's historical grounding, but this is probably one of the more overt departures from history, though maybe not quite as big a departure as Sunset Invasion. TJ, Let's go over the highlights. What are the, the big new additions Monks and Mystics summoned into CK2? Yeah, so the the major, major new feature is that they've added societies, which are these factions you can join. They're almost uh, a little bit like um, factions in an MMO a little bit, where your, your character becomes a member of it, and then you have to do things for them to rise through the ranks, and they give you new abilities. So there are some that are sort of modeled off of historical ones. Like there's the Benedictine order. If you want to be, you know, you can't actually become a proper monk um, because that tended to exclude people from feudal landholding and would kind of have to be either its own expansion or its own game. Um, but they've added the uh, the assassins as, as one for uh, Shia Muslims. And then there's some crazy ones uh like the hermetic society where you which did exist historically but the ck2 version of it of course you get to be kind of a wizard which is cool and then uh <laughs> the one that everyone's been talking about lucifer's own where you can become a secret satanist which although there was a lot of hysteria about it in the middle ages and a lot of people were accused and tried and convicted of being satanist there's not a lot of evidence that they actually were um, but you get all kinds of uh, dark powers, like being able to make wives and children disappear and uh, sucking you life force out imp. of babies. Yeah, you can summon a you can summon a demon familiar, which there were actually several uh, medieval rulers who had their pets that were accused of have, harboring a demonic familiar, which is pretty funny to read about. Yeah, you could have um, a little a little evil kitty cat. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. A little evil crow or a raven or something like yeah. that. It's lovely. Just perched on your shoulder saying terrible things like, praise Satan. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, very, very high chance to make you gain the possessed trait and go crazy. And, uh, you know, it's it's a uh, burn bright and then watch your whole kingdom fall into uh, into the dust sort of play style, which could be fun in CK2. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting new, what I felt like the societies really added to the game is the ability to play Crusader Kings 2 for extended periods of time without going to war and finally feel like you have enough interesting stuff to do that you're not just thinking about what your next war is, way of life kind of 
started steering the game in this direction, but I feel like Monks and Mystics is kind of solidified, and Conclave as well to some extent, that they want CK2 to be a game where you can play it in a way that's different from the typical grand strategy map painter, war-focused, conquest-focused uh, play style. I think it's more than just not having to, to go to war, um, particularly with the the devil worshippers, um, and we we didn't point out that, that you don't have to be Lucifer's own. You can also join kind of various devil worshipping cults attached to different cultures. Right. So like the Germanic cultures have like hells, something or other. Um, yeah, and they're so, they're kind of just copy pastes of the Satan one. Yeah, but it's they're nice just reskins. Yeah, included included them. Uh, there's same thing with like the. I played a game as the Buddhist monastic orders, and they're basically a copy-paste of the Christian monastic orders, which is a little bit disappointing because uh, I would like to see more flavor in that area of the world, but still cool that they're in there. But yeah, so, so more than just not having to go to war, I find myself completely focused on the abilities and missions and event chains attached to these societies, particularly... The, the devil worshipping, but the hermetic ones as well. There's just so much variety in them that you could basically forget that you're actually meant to be ruling a, a duchy or a kingdom or an empire yeah. and just focus entirely on that. And it, they do bleed into the, the rulership stuff because like as a Satanist, for instance, or, or a devil worshipper or what have you, you can use your mystical abilities to make enemies disappear or make wives suddenly get very, very ill and yeah. all this other stuff to kind of um, increase your own influence, not just within your society, but increase your power as a, as a, a noble as well. Well, and, and in a game where you could already like uh, murder babies and, you know, all kinds of weird stuff that you'll see posted on Reddit a lot. I think this expansion actually managed to outdo all past Crusader Kings event chains in terms of just going super, super dark. <laughs> like, there's oh, yeah. a there's an event chain where you can, like, capture a peasant family and, like, you kill the wife and cut off the wife's face and dance around while your the husband is, like, burning at the stake or something. Uh, one of the dark divorce events is that your wife gets attacked by a swarm of crows and literally <laughs> eaten alive in front of you. Like, I actually asked on Twitter who wrote those events, and they said they weren't going to tell me to protect their identity. So... Yeah, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> it's um, by far the most disturbing piece yeah. of TLC that they've done. And yeah. I, I found myself, you know, it left me with a lot of memorable tales, a lot of great anecdotes, but... <laughs> The reason I think some of them stuck with me is just how horrifically guilt-ridden it left me. Like, my my first playthrough was uh, I, I picked Duke Lazlo of Transylvania. Uh, because, nice. <laughs> you know, I've got no imagination. I'm going to pick Transylvania. Um, he's he's Duke of Transylvania, Prince of Hungary, and I was determined to get involved with all sorts of demonic shenanigans, as you do. And it, it's quite mm -hmm. easy because you just you know express 
interest and weight, which is what it, exactly yeah. what I did. So eventually this woman appears in my castle. We get into a, a wee chat about how God's a bit shite. And uh, <laughs> we hit it off and she gives me this pouch with some chicken in it. Uh, yep. I, I learn, as I'm sure <laughs> you did, TJ. The nugget. yeah. Yeah, the pouches of chicken are super popular amongst <laughs> devil worshippers. They are yeah. They're nuts for tiny bags of poultry. Um, <laughs> And, and from there, you know, things were a little bit silly. There was loads of sex and feasting and, and mm-hmm. fancy new abilities. But then that's when it started to take a predictably dark, dark turn. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of my favorite parts about that intro chain is the part where it's like you're discussing religion. And it's like particularly her points about the non-efficacy of prayer resonated with me. Right. Like you're just sitting around <laughs> drinking. It's like, yeah, praying's bullshit. I prayed for a million ducats the other week and nothing happened. Like, <laughs> praise <laughs> Satan. But, um, yeah. What, where it started to go wrong for me was I was like, you know what? I, I, there are no other devil worshippers in my duchy. I, I was feeling kind of alone. So I started just trying to recruit everyone in my council and like all of my uh-huh. family. And yeah. some of them were like, hey, you know, there's some pretty interesting things that you're telling me about. And then I'd try and give them the chicken and they'd be like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> I'm not having any of that. So, yeah. so people start to get not... a bit suspicious. They're like, why yeah. is Laszlo trying to give us chicken? <laughs> this is really weird. And to, to stop people getting too suspicious i started just like killing them all and so yeah. there was years i'm talking like decades of murder and torture and demonic possession and curses and mind control J- not just so i could gain more power and increase my rank in the cult but so we could avoid being executed by christians um, yeah i think i killed like four of my wives and at least one of those times was through magical cancer <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is, especially if you're playing as a vassal and your liege finds out that you're a devil worshiper, worshiper you are ultra screwed. Like, they're going to revoke all of your titles, possibly imprison you, and maybe even execute you, which is part of how it, how they balance out all the dark powers, I think. The other way being that if you are in that society, you're eventually going to lose all of your virtues and accumulate all seven vices and probably possessed, and probably <laughs> lunatic, depending on how long your character lives. Well, I, I think it was, like, yeah. wife number three, and she was actually the queen of Hungary. Yeah. Um, and she, like, knew I was into Satan, and she eventually <laughs> imprisoned me. But uh-huh. one of my cultist buddies freed me, and then nice. I killed her. Um but yeah. I felt kind of guilty because it is just like I'm constantly I'm racking up this body count just to stay ahead of like the Inquisition, really. Yeah. Um, but where I started to think maybe I should stop playing this and do something nice like pet a kitten um, was where I had this I had this bastard son. And I, I, it's revealed to me that he's the Antichrist uh, and he's mm-hmm. destined to rule the cult that I've been hoping to lead myself. And, and worse, he starts to systematically kill off every single one of my kids. We're talking double digits. Yeah. It's, a, it's a massacre. <laughs> and it's all through like nightmares. It's uh-huh. always like they've died suspiciously and I can never prove it. But... The thing is, is I want to stop him from doing this, but at the same time, he's destined to like bring Satan to Earth. So I've got to protect him. So every time a plot appears, I'm using dark magic to kill these people, while also trying to stop him from using dark magic to kill off my entire family. 
Um, a few days after he became an adult and um, kind of became the ruler of, of the cult, I died under suspicious circumstances. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, my, my piece of advice to, to everyone listening is, is if someone asks you to join a kind of fancy demon-worshipping cult, say no. It's a terrible idea. It's not okay. going to end well for you. Do you do you play with uh, do you play with Sunset Invasion turned on by any chance? No, I, I haven't played Sunset Invasion in like four years. <laughs> here's the thing: I'm sort of the same way. But if you have uh, if you have um, monks and mystics, and you're playing the Satanist um, cult, I would recommend that for at least one game, leave Sunset Invasion turned on because they have added a crossover event chain where you will get the son of Lucifer as your child. When he cut, grows to adulthood, he will become head of, of the cult, and then he will depart across the Atlantic to recruit the Aztecs into a demonic army under his control and what? return to Europe to kill everybody. <laughs> what? <laughs> and he'll have, like, the demon mask and the Aztec emperor, like, feather headdress, and it is the most epic thing ever. <laughs> All of a sudden, Sunset Invasion has become like yeah. a must-have. <laughs> They've retroactively made Sunset Invasion a good expansion. It's it's crazy, yeah. Because that um, was what that was the first expansion that they did, and the, it was it's probably the it worst. Was, I expansion. think it was like, it was like the they, Sword of Islam was first, and then oh, I right. think Sunset Invasion really. Because I've been sort of Islam and then um, Legacy of Rome and then Sunset Invasion. Because, I mean, I'm getting yeah. old, TJ, so my memory's not <laughs> where it used to be. But I remember um, it wasn't long after CK2 had launched. I was in Stockholm and they were showing me Sunset Invasion. Uh -huh. I thought that it was the first expansion. But you might be right. You're a younger man. You've still got all your well, faculties. And I've also played uh, like eleven hundred hours of Crusader Kings and memorized the wiki, so that that <laughs> yeah. also I guess plays I'll, a role I'll in bounce it. Yeah. your your greater knowledge here. So, <laughs> but it was um, it's definitely one of the most disappointing ones. But now you yeah. kind of have to buy it. <laughs> if at least if you're doing a Satanist playthrough, it's worth leaving it on. Uh, and let's but, be honest: if, if you are not going to do a Satanist playthrough, maybe. I mean, I don't want to say that there's no point in doing any of the other ones because there, there are. The, the Hermetic uh -huh. stuff is especially really fun. Oh, yeah. But this is clearly, the, the focus is clearly on the Satanist stuff. Yeah. Undeniably. It's got the most Definitely. elaborate event chains, the most abilities. Because if, so, so basically when you join uh, one of these societies and cults and secret religions, you kind of, you work your way up in the ranks. You gain influence by successfully doing missions and you can spend the power that you gain on certain activities. But if you store it up, you can unlock the next rank and the next right. rank gives you quite a long list of new powers. But if you play the Satanist first, you'll probably be disappointed by the other ones because a lot of them are like, you can kind of make someone not stressed anymore instead yeah. of you can summon a demonic familiar. <laughs> well, like the 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 one thing that is semi broken with the um, like the Benedictines and like the monastic orders that a lot of people don't really notice is that if you get up to I think it's the second rank, you can actually take a vow, vow of celibacy and yeah. you can toggle that on and off. So if you're playing <laughs> a gigantic gavel kind realm and you want to make sure that you don't have more than one son so it doesn't split up your realm when you die, you can just 
wait until you have a son, become celibate, and then, like, if he dies before you do, turn celibacy back off, get another son, and make sure that you only have one child at any given time, which is... Yeah, that's that's the that's meta. Broken. If you, you want to be a Benedictine, um, yeah, it's... I, I did not get into the the monastic orders at all. Yeah, I tried. they're not nearly as interesting. I mean, you've got you can either you can give someone magic cancer and get people <laughs> possessed, or you can choose not to have sex. Yeah, <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> that's just yeah. not a good option. No, um, you obviously and... go Satanist. But the, like, I think uh, as a as a medievalist, I love that they're trying to represent these orders in the game because sure. they were hugely like socially influential during this time period. But in a game about feudal rulers, you can't really tell like compelling stories about monks. Like you need to have a game about monks, or you need to create a new play style where it's like I'm not gonna play as a duke. I'm gonna play as a monk, and I'm gonna negotiate for property rights for my monastery and when i die i'll either take over as a different monk or i'll just get a game over screen and load the save and pick someone else like that's but there uh, are you, things that you yeah. could you you could feasibly do that paradox could have introduced yeah. to start there like you you kind of feel like as a monk you should be going around being an inquisitor you know, yeah. playing into the fantasy. And I'm not talking about an actual Inquisitor. I'm talking more like Warhammer style. Exactly. Because if they're going to have the sa hugely ahistorical Satanists, uh, they need to create an organization that would have existed if these Satanists had actually existed to fight against them. Because you can actually get yeah. artifacts like little pistols why not create like a witch hunter that dual wields pistols <laughs> something which, like that speaking of which that is a huge and awesome new feature of this expansion is that your character actually has an inventory yeah it's uh, so now. rpg we're, we're it's getting brilliant. closer and closer to ck2 just becoming a full-blown rpg uh, which i have a suspicion i have a sneaking suspicion that that's kind of the whole idea for ck3 which I'm sure, as I've said before, exists on a whiteboard somewhere, even if it's not in development. I think it's going to be much more of an RPG, and I think they're using these later expansions to prototype ideas that they would like to introduce in some form to CK3. That's always been the selling point for CK2, yeah. isn't it? It's like, yeah, it looks like a grand strategy game, but actually it's an RPG slash soap opera. Yeah. Um, that's, like, that is what makes it stand out. And what makes it worthwhile still playing EU4 and CK2 together. You don't need to pick one or the other because they're so different. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, let's kind of dig into the um, the treasury um, and, yeah. and the inventory system. Because it's kind of interesting. Um, it can be a little bit strange. Because I remember when I was playing my, my um, devil-worshipping guy, Laszlo, um, he also started talking to God. And he became yeah. devoutly Christian. There's there's yeah. some weird broken there's, bits where you can yeah. still be and legitimately not pretending to be Christian, but actually believing that God's you, great while hating you can, him. You can actually get the voice of Satan modifier and the military advice from Jesus That's, modifiers that at is the same time. That is what yeah. happened. And one of them <laughs> led me to getting some sort of like... You've literally got the angel and the devil on each shoulder telling you what to do. I got like the toenail of an apostle or something that granted yeah. me like, I don't know, oh, yeah. more fertility or something. And I, I was I like... Have... 
Here's the funny thing. I had a finger bone of St. Anthony at one point, mm-hmm. and there's an event chain where it gets stolen, and you can choose to remove it from your inventory and gain piety, or you can dig up a corpse, put it where the finger bone used to be, and you lose piety, but the effects of the finger bone don't go away. <laughs> so it's so sort strange. of implying that like these saints' relics... I mean, we can never really verify if they're real or not, but as long as you tell people that that's the real finger bone of St. Anthony that's been in your family for generations, <laughs> you still get the benefit of it. So, so it's, so there's it's definitely There's some stuff that doesn't really work. You get items that, that don't really make much sense for your character. But um, I think where it really kind of gets fleshed out is when you join, like, the Hermetic Order. Um and you mm-hmm. can actually, you're basically like an archaeologist. You're like Indiana Jones um, uh-huh. going on these adventures all over the world, trying to find the secrets of like astronomy and immortality and finding all these weird things and inventing because you're, you're an inventor as well. Yeah. Um, and you start racking up this treasury of, of really neat little trinkets but the thing is that some of them are attached to event chains and the event chains are all really interesting because you're actually going on a proper full-fledged choose your own adventure often with little companions who you become friends with and develop relationships with Mm -hmm. and in in one me and a buddy of mine um i was kind of not getting along with this other guy um this um uh, like muslim scholar so we got pissed and we went and raided his laboratory and yeah. just trashed it and robbed yeah. him. And uh-huh. we're like, at the end, we're like lying on the grass, giggling like school children. See, and- I, I failed that event chain and I got imprisoned. And at the time, oh, I, was an, I was an emperor. And the guy whose lab we raided was a mayor. <laughs> because your, your feudal rank doesn't have any bearing on your rank within the society. So I was like one of the most powerful rulers in Europe, and I got caught, like, trashing the laboratory of this, like, (laughs) nobody mayor in, like, Poland or something, and I ended up in his dungeon and had to pay, like, over 400 gold for my release. It was, like, the largest economic influx. It was the most money he'd ever seen in one place at one time uh, because we decided to pull some frat shenanigans and got caught. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these these are all brilliant, and it's the, the, like these sorts of weird adventures, and they are very much kind of Indiana Jones style shenanigans. Yeah, um, are some of the best parts of this expansion. But the payoff, the the actual items that you get, they kind of they seem cool at first, but then you're like, it's really just a, a kind of minor stat modifier often, and it doesn't always even make sense. Um, yeah. And that's the same. That's not just for like items, but um, some of the modifiers you get at the end, end of event chains. Like I spoke to the divine uh, mm-hmm. and asked for the secrets of like the celestial bodies because I was really into like stargazing, like a giant nerd. And <laughs> and I speak to the divine, and the divine gives me all this advice, and it's like great. I spoke to the divine. What did I get? Minus one diplomacy. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. And it's like, it, yeah, the conversation didn't go well, but it did in the event. And Well, I think it's semi-random, and that particular event comes up so often if you mm-hmm. have, if you stay in the Hermetic Society for several generations, that I eventually just click through it, and then I'll click the top one. Like, oh yeah, let's summon the Divine. Yeah, tell me more about the planets. All right, moving on. Like, it's, it's one of those events in CK2 that 
it, it loses its impact because it happens so many times mm-hmm. over the course of a playthrough that I'm just like, eh. It's kind of like yeah. in every game, there's a dude who just wants to party with you like every yeah. month. Yeah. <laughs> like constantly. Yeah. I usually just kill that one. I'm just like, well, no, that, I'm not well, coming to party. It's usually a vassal who perceives me as a threat and mm-hmm. is like, oh, I got to party with this guy every weekend so he doesn't revoke my titles. And it's like, I'm sick of all this partying. I'm just going to assassinate you so, so that you'll stop asking me to party. And in Monks yeah. and Mystics, the repetition goes beyond just seeing the same events over and over again. Um, and, that, you know, that's inevitable when you are playing for hundreds of mm-hmm. years. Um, the issue is that failure um, often just... The, the result is you just try again. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's really common if you're playing uh, a devil worshipper. So you can try to subvert someone and corrupt someone yeah. or, or like capture them because you can actually, um, right. instead of legally imprisoning someone, which has a chance of failing and can piss off your vassals, you can do it in secret. Um, and you basically just make some of your cultists like find some this person in a, usually like disguise themselves. Yeah. And if they fail, you can just do it straight away, and the event is exactly the same. It's like this guy likes to dress up to go around and hang out with the common people, so that's when we'll snatch him. It fails. We do the exact same again. It succeeds, and there well, hasn't it- really been a consequence. <laughs> And here's the funny thing. This is the the Satanism story I wanted to share. Is I was playing as a duke in Norway, and I uh, I was trying to kind of like overthrow the king of Norway using satanic scheming. And yeah. I found out from reading uh, reading a forum thread that if you are the leader of Lucifer's own, any ruler who is also a leader of that society who is lower rank than you will accept vassalization to you no matter what, no matter what the other modifiers were. So I was looking at all those like little Finnish counts that live along the northern outskirts of Norway, and I was like, I'm going to imprison all of them, convert them to Satanism, and make them my vassals so I don't have to con- uh, conquer anything. And like this one guy, I think he was the the chief of the Lopi, or what, whatever the one that's like right, you know, the Swedish Lapland basically in, in modern parlance, um, I finally captured him. He was in my dungeon for like 24 years. And every time <laughs> I tried to force him to convert to Satan, it would be like, oh, his will was too strong. Or like at one point he gained the lunatic trait because I, I had been, you know, torturing him for so long and he still couldn't accept Satan. So he went crazy. And then I got up to the rank in the society where you can actually demonically possess someone to make them your loyal ally. Um, and I I did that event over and over again. It kept not working. Eventually, it said he had been possessed by a demon, but not one that was loyal to me. So he gained the possessed trait, already had lunatic, but he also had like an additional minus 50 opinion of me. So there's just like this crazy possessed guy frothing at the mouth, like chewing on his own arm in my dungeons for like 24 years because I wanted to, you know, take one province without going to war. And it never worked. <laughs> like he died eventually. His son took over, and this whole like this whole uh, scheme I had come up with fell completely flat because I could not ever convince him to accept Satan. And I found that that's been true 
Anytime I've tried to do that, it's very, very hard to get other people to join your society. Yeah. Even if they already have, like, gluttonous and ambitious and greedy, like, they don't want to join Satan. Yeah, because the more, uh, the like, the idea is that the more sinful they are, and as long as they don't have, kind of, virtuous traits like chaste and things like that, they're more likely to, to join your cult. But it's really hard, and it, you do usually have to get them possessed. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes that works, but inevitably what happens is the possessed person is insane. So yeah, yeah. you've got this like person on your council who is now a member of uh, Lucifer's own, but they're really shit at their job. Like I had a steward, and I really wanted um, him to to join the cult, and it you know he wasn't into it. He didn't want my chicken. Uh, nobody <laughs> wants my chicken. So so I I got a demon to possess him, and that worked out. And he joined my cult, and then he started just stealing from me constantly. Yeah. Um, and not just stealing from me, but also losing money a lot. Um, and I eventually I just killed him because I was like, this guy sucks. And that's yeah, most... you know that's what Satanists do. They just kill each other. <laughs> Most of my Satanist characters that have risen to the top of the ranks always end up with, like, a 35 in Intrigue and then, like, 1 or 0 in all of the other stats because you end up with, with like, all of the negative virtue or all of the vices plus possessed plus insane. It wipes out any of your virtues. It wipes out, you know, traits like diligent and... Uh, you know, anything that would make you at all fun to talk to, to anyone else. <laughs> and that's really that's really the balancing, I think, of Lucifer's own. People call it, you know, overpowered. But if you are a member of Lucifer's own and all of your vassals and all of your min- administrators are members of Lucifer's own, it's all just a bunch of evil people trying to one-up each other who probably have terrible diplomacy and, you know, no ability to do anything except scheme against each other, and it's all a big house of cards, more or less. I think when when people uh, take issue with, with some DLC in CK2 and call it overpowered or imbalanced, I kind of feel that they reveal that they are looking at the game in a very different way from me. Because... Yeah. You t- who is like unless you're trying to have a fun experiment, you don't play CK2 like a power gamer. And um, when you exploit stuff, it's you do it knowingly for a laugh because exploiting things is fun. You don't mm-hmm. exploit something by mistake and then be like, oh, it's too powerful. Um, I don't really get the complaint because ultimately this is a game about living out weird medieval fantasies. Yeah. Um, and if you think an element is way too easy or way too powerful, you can just choose how you engage with it. Um, there are always ways to minimize the impact of of something that's that's OP. Um, so it's kind of strange. I, I heard that they actually did rebalance uh, the, the devil worshippers to make it a little bit trickier um, a little while yeah. after lunch. I think they they rebalanced the main thing that they changed is they they made it harder I think based on your your title rank they made it harder for you to kidnap people because it was a little bit easy too easy mm-hmm. to just you know kidnap the Byzantine emperor and since he's in your dungeons you have a lot of extra plot power to just execute him if you want to um the one thing they haven't rebalanced that is a strategy I really want to try now is the the Black Widow strategy where you you get a female ruler, you marry like all of the most powerful men in Europe in succession and just use dark divorce to get rid of them <laughs> until you inherit all of their lands, 
which actually sounds like a lot of fun. Um, yeah, we should explain that, that dark divorce actually just means uh, Satan kills your spouse. Yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah. And you don't, the, nobody will suspect that it was you. You don't need plot power. It just, they're just dead. Yeah, if you can convince the, them to marry you, you have their life in your hands. It, it's an ability you get in, I think, the second highest rank in the, in the cult. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I, we haven't really talked about that much is the assassins. Um, they're actually yeah. pretty different, aren't they? Um, I, I have not... I've only played very briefly as the Assassins just to look at what their abilities are, but man, they are powerful. Like, yeah, it's You can crazy. mark someone for death and have, like, every other member of the cult will then, you know, go after them, basically. So you can pretty much guarantee that somebody dies, and it won't be you who actually kills them. So even if the Assassin is caught you are not directly implicated, which is pretty powerful. What I kind of find funny about the assassins is, you know, the the, the term conjures up uh, images of, like, subtle, um, you know, subtle blokes with swords sneaking into palaces and murdering people mm -hmm. in the name of Allah. But um, actually, they're more about, like, raising armies of assassins. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the missions, like, for instance, in, in the other societies your missions will be like an event chain or mm -hmm. capture someone kill someone and they're kind of they're usually pretty easy uh, as a member of the assassin order it's like declare war on this yeah. other country and then take over their temple um but you're obviously you're a ruler you're declaring war with full might of your um of your your land so it's not yeah. like a subtle thing and then you actually have to deal with the repercussions well, of of actually fighting a full-blown war and, but and, and historically the assassins did fight like battlefield battles it wasn't all cloak and dagger like that's actually pretty historically accurate and the other thing is their 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 uh, society currency once you reach i think the the two highest ranks you can actually, yeah, summon an army of assassins on top of whatever army you have in your own lands yeah. to help you conquer uh, conquer your enemies. So it's, it's you can super play powerful. them very aggressively. It's, They're it's the almost like the free armies that pagans can get for summoning tribal armies and stuff. Yeah, so they're like the almost the the, the militant, and it, it does kind of fit with the idea of the the fact that they're devoted to to their version of of Islam and, and want to see it take mm -hmm. over. And um, but what's kind of interesting is that whereas with the, a lot of the other societies, it's kind of there are a lot of different cultures attached to them. Um, whereas with assassins, obviously you can only be an assassin if you pick a Shia ruler, um, mm -hmm. and there are not. All that many. Um, you kind of, uh, like, uh, certainly if you're playing, I think if you're playing at the earliest start, there are like none. There are like two mm -hmm. or three options, and that kind of increases. Um, but it's a lot more focused, and that also means that you kind of end up with a lot more enemies as well. Well, the other thing that I was kind of disappointed to discover is that they haven't made really any effort to reconcile the existing Shia theocratic holy order called the Hashashin with yeah. the Assassin's Secret Society. They they exist completely independently. So you can be the Grandmaster of the Assassins uh, and you have like some other feudal title. And then right next to you is the titular Duchy of the Hashashin 
who are a completely separate entity and don't don't interact with your society whatsoever that also have a ruler called a grandmaster which is a little bit weird um i wish they would figure out s- some way to reconcile those two entities that exist independently and sometimes concurrently within the game yeah it's um i think there's there's still a little bit work to do on on some of the, basically like every single one of them that isn't yeah. uh, the, uh-huh. the devil worshiping cults uh and it's not that all of these are still fantastic. I mean, there are new ways to play the game thanks to them. I think they are like they're really refreshing ways to engage with, with CK2. But I mean, mm-hmm. there there are whole bits that are missing. Like I'm not sure if it's been added yet. But at launch, and this may still be the case, alchemical ingredients did not do anything. Uh, one of the, uh-huh. the ideas is you could create like elixirs and potions and all of this, like and dabble in alchemy, and so. While you're you're playing with the Hermetic Order, you can get weird plants and herbs and all these kind of potions and stuff, and you're meant to be able to do something with them, but they just sit in your inventory and do absolutely nothing. And that was actually one of the things that was kind of advertised in the, the dev diaries and stuff like that. You can become an alchemist. And then it just didn't actually appear. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like maybe there was some sort of reshuffling of release dates since you know, paradox is making four grand strategy yeah. games now that are all in active expansion cycles and i think maybe they had you know less time than they originally thought to get the expansion done or they were running behind and they had to cut some stuff out that they originally intended to include again i don't know why they would in- keep that event for retrieving reagents in there if they weren't going to do anything but they've also said uh, publicly that they originally wanted monks and mystics to uh, include more interactions with the holy orders. Like a Christian ruler could become a lay member of like the Knights Templar, and that didn't make the cut. They just didn't have time for it. So I hope that in patches future, we will see some more love for the societies. I'd love to just see a big between expansions patch that's just like bunch of new societies we fleshed out a bunch of the ones that were already there and added extra flavor and here you go thanks for buying monks and mystics thanks for bearing <laughs> with us like i would love 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 if they had the time and resources to do that uh, did you uh, did you join one of the, uh, the secret religions which See, is those it's are, separate those and are really cool. confusing though because I, yeah i had a lot of people like asking me like how do you even join one? Um, and it is actually a little bit... It's a little bit strange because you have to... It starts the same way as you would kind of convert to a religion yeah. in the, the, the vanilla game or, or any any of the other expansions um, where you would have, like, a, a liege or a spouse or something like that would allow you to convert. And then you would convert, but you'd also secretly be part well, of another religion. Yeah, I played. A, I played a pretty significantly long game doing this. I basically I started out as the Count of Kurdistan in in seven sixty nine. There, Charlemagne start. He starts as the vassal to a duke who is a vassal to the Abbasids, and he is Zoroastrian. He's one of the only. Zoroastrian rulers, but he's a vassal to a Sunni Muslim who is a vassal to the most powerful Sunni Muslim on the map. So there's like two distinct 
steps. The first is you can choose to um, publicly convert to Islam, but secretly stay Zoroastrian. So you, for diplomacy purposes, everyone thinks you're a Muslim. You can still do Muslim events. You can go on Hajj and all that. But you have that trait that tells that you're secretly still Zoroastrian, and you can even like educate your kids to be secret Zoroastrians so the future generations uphold that tradition. And then once you have that trait, you have the ability to found a society of secret Zoroastrians that you become the leader of. I don't think they exist at game start. I think only players yeah, you have are, to are able create to create them. them. Yeah. And then from there, you could actually start recruiting you know, other rulers within the realm who were actually Muslims from birth. You can convert them to secret Zoroastrians, invite them to your society, and then like the top-level ability is when you think you're strong enough, you can basically call everyone to publicly declare their faith and go to war against, you know, your Muslim lieges and carve out a, you know, a free Zoroastrian realm out of nowhere that nobody, you know, even suspected was coming, which... Is it a historical? Yes. Is it a lot of fun? Also, yes. <laughs> yeah, very much so, the end goal of all of these secret yeah. religions is to become a dominant religion and exist yeah. in the open, in the daylight. Um, but what I was kind of a bit disappointed by was that there are no options for unreformed pagans or heretics. That's coming in the patch. There's is a that beta actually patch. on its way? Oh, wonderful. Yeah, there's a beta patch out right now that allows you to do that, and it's the next full patch is going to allow yeah because i want to do the same thing like because you can you can be Norse secretly pagan, pagan but you can't yeah. actually make a society out of it right now you just you're secretly pagan but it yeah, doesn't only, really mean anything only the reformed pagans got societies initially so mm -hmm. you would have had to have reformed the norse church and then got conquered by christians which by the time you've reformed the norse church the chances that you're going to get conquered by christians are pretty low um, but now they, they've added ones in for unreformed pagans. So if you're like, if you're the Slavic <laughs> Duke of Poland and then, you know, you get conquered by Pomeranians, Christians or something, you could remain secretly of the Slavic faith and plot the, the re, uh, the re awakening of Perun or whatever. So, yeah. But yeah, I, I really love the idea that you can still get all of the benefits of the religion you are pretending to be part of yeah. as well. Um, uh -huh. You are, for all intents and purposes, a member of that religion because everyone thinks that you are. You, um, could even, you could even have, like, a son who you send off to the monastery who's, like, a secret pagan, and he could become a cardinal and even the pope while still being a secret pagan. <laughs> it's so deliciously yeah. deceitful and insidious. Yeah. You're just kind of creating this underground cult throughout the world and, uh, and just waiting to rise up. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, wait, are our neighbors all Zoroastrian? <laughs> <laughs> this is a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. But um, so there are some other features that that got added in that haven't really got anything to do with religion and magic and stuff like that and i think they're worth noting as well because some of them are kind of a big deal um there's the new passive counselor action for one um which kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, the stuff that was added to the national focuses in hearts of iron for together for victory 
Yeah, uh-huh. Which is your, like, it's like a sort of persistent action that it's like actually the default. So it means that even if you've not assigned a member of your council to do something like training troops or researching, then they're still, like, doing something for you. Yeah, it's nice because it's you don't feel like you have to babysit counselors and tell them what to do all the time. Yeah. If you haven't given them something specific to do, they will go find something useful to do on their own power. Um, and, and if you have a specific mission for them, you can go ahead and do that. But you don't have to constantly being like, okay, I guess I'll have my steward oversee construction in this province. Like, it's... it's uh, it it's a kind of bit... it's a bit of busy work normally, isn't it? Yeah. You feel uh-huh. like you should be doing something with them. So it's like, oh, this dude, my my martial guy. I guess he can train some troops because maybe I'll yeah. go to war. And occasionally he'll, he'll like be like, hey, boss, training some troops is going to do yeah. well. And I'm like, great. <laughs> well, and the well the thing is the the marshal's passive is really good because you'll recruit. He'll recruit new commanders over time that usually start with like 15 plus skill, but then he'll also he'll improve your existing commanders. So anyone that has the commander title, like there's a chance that they'll gain a new battlefield ability, like they'll gain, you know, flanking expert or they'll gain a couple points to their martial score. So if you leave that that counselor job on for a long time, when you go to war, it's like, wow, I have like four generals that all have 20 or higher martial skill and really good battlefield traits. Because we're, we're calling them, them passive, but they are, they're every bit as powerful as the other yeah. actions. It's just that when you start, and when you start, your council would normally not be doing anything like right. at all, and you'd have to individually assign them an action. But now, from the get-go, you can just let them get on with it unless you specifically want them to do something like oversee construction or collect taxes. Right. Um, and like the, the chancellor can basically be set to just randomly improve your relations with any surrounding ruler, including your liege and vassals, which is nice because you don't have to keep moving them around. Very similar to what they added with the diplomatic macro builder in the latest EU4 expansion. It like it seems like Paradox is, is adopting a philosophy where you can automate a lot of stuff that you don't want to fiddle with every single second of every single game. See, I love that. And it, that's uh-huh. one of the reasons that I dig Distant Worlds so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've we've spoken about this on the show kind of a few times. It's it's one of my favorite Space 4X games because you can choose to automate automate whatever you want. Um, so you can start off and automate every single aspect of your empire apart from one exploration vessel, and you can just flit around the universe like the Enterprise, getting in wee adventures while (laughs) the AI controls your empire. And this is the best bit. It controls it competently. In fact, I'll admit it, when you start playing, it's better letting the AI take over pretty much everything because it's going to be better than you because it's a really difficult game. I think there's a balancing act there, too. Like they said with Hearts of Iron 4, the reason they didn't port over the ability in Hearts of Iron 3 to just automate entire army groups and fronts of your army is because why are you playing the game if you don't actually want to play the game? But I think they're hitting, they're hitting a point where things that 
are not interesting to make decisions about on a consistent basis can be automated. Yeah. Whereas things that really are momentous enough to require your constant supervision are. I kind of feel that's that's maybe a little bit harsh, though, the, the idea if if you want to automate so much, why are you even playing the game? Because I think it's almost like creating your own tutorial and choosing yeah. what to engage with. Because just because you decide to automate 75% of the game, it doesn't mean you will keep doing that for the entire game. What it allows you to do is learn the ropes. Because, let's face it, there's not a single grand strategy game out there with a good tutorial. Um that really, it'll maybe give you a basic foundation of of a, a decent portion of it. But these games are so elaborate. You can only really learn by just jumping in and playing and by controlling the bits that you can automate and are, are selecting different elements to automate right up to the point where you're only really controlling one thing. That allows you to learn incrementally. And I think that actually helps the learning process quite a lot. Uh, I wouldn't have necessarily gotten into Distant Worlds if I hadn't been able to do that because it was such a a daunting prospect because it is very elaborate. I mean, I, I I get what you're saying, but I just I think that it has its, its its benefits and it's not like people would just only want to play that part of the game. They would eventually move on to the other elements. Yeah, yeah, I could see that for sure. And uh, I, I think that... The current state of CK2 is is uh, right about where I'd want it in terms of limiting micromanagement, um, especially you know now that counselors require less work, now that they've they've improved so much of the um, like the intrigue interface too. That was another big change that came with the monks and mystics patch that I absolutely love, like the ability to sort prisoners in your dungeons by like which ones can be ransomed and like mass ransom mass, oh yeah mass banish doing it all at once is just yeah. such a boon especially if you're an asshole like me imprisoning everyone <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah they've they've added a lot of quality of life to like plots and prisoners and uh decisions and all that stuff i think it's it's actually menith who's a very well-known uh ck2 modder that now i think works at least part time with the CK2 team has has done a lot of those interface improvements that are they make they make the game a lot more fun to interact with especially on the intrigue tab which used to be kind of a mess See, while these might seem uh, distinct and kind of separate from the rest of the expansion I actually think they fit in perfectly because this expansion is all about just going on your own sort of adventures interacting yeah. with the game on, on your own terms and ignoring a lot of things if you choose to like we said at the beginning where you're not really you don't need to go to war or be a politician or play the the kind of the marriage game and all this other stuff you can just be a crazy devil worshiper for the entirety of your life and that's now, fine here's an interesting here's an interesting question that i'm curious do you feel like ck2 is at this point too long for its own good in certain ways because i was thinking about these event chains you get with the hermetic order and how many times i've seen the same one and it's like yeah but i've been playing the same save file for 400 years yeah so we can't really expect them to make that many unique events but at the same time is that maybe not a failing of their ability to write events and more of a failing of like they've created a game 
that you can potentially play the same dynasty for 700 years, and that's just way longer than is reasonable or interesting. See, I now, and this is not how I originally started playing it, but I now treat a game of CK2 almost like as a life. Yeah. It's so once my my character dies and an heir takes over, I often that's 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 the game for me and I'll do something else. I'll play a different character. Um not of the same dynasty, but a completely yeah. different game. Um and I'm completely happy with doing that. Because for me, and, and it's it has always been about these characters. And yeah, sometimes it's nice to see how the heirs develop, especially because you are putting work into their development from the moment they're born. But I get so invested in the characters I'm I'm playing with, and as you say, there's a lot of repetition that sometimes I just want to move on and and try a bunch of different things. So, for instance, yeah. when when my um, when my Satanist died, Laszlo, I obviously didn't become my my bastard antichrist because he was illegitimate <laughs> illegitimate bastard so i became like a yeah. nephew or something and he was just this chubby looking catholic dude <laughs> i was like i didn't <laughs> know him i'm like wait how is he even alive i thought my family was dead and i went right well the story of laszlo is what i was playing and i'm gonna move on and that's when i started playing as an assassin and unless that life ends abruptly, which it often does. Yeah. I, I would just treat that as, as the game. Uh, if I get like a full, healthy life. Uh, I mean, do you... I mean, I, I know you, you kind of go in for the, the whole slog, right? Well, I, I actually... I was going to say, I love that style of play. I, I tend to refer to it as the quantum leap style of <laughs> CK2. And I, I would highly encourage anyone who hasn't done this to to try exactly that like start in 769 when your character dies you have to pick someone who is not the same religion not the same culture and not in the same de jure kingdom obviously you can't do it in iron man but um i think that sort of the 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 bounds built into ck2 that it has to be the continuous story of a dynasty across 700 years are limiting and it becomes a lot more fun when you find ways to throw off those shackles. Uh, because uh, For one thing, it doesn't feel historical. There aren't a lot of cases of dynasties that remained in power and, you know, met with success after success after success for 700 straight years of history. I don't know that I can even think of one. Um, like, the, the Capetians were in power for a long time, but they didn't even come along till pretty far into CK2's timeline. Um, like, even the Carlings. Like, Car Charlemagne, possibly the greatest king in all of your European history, if you believe, like, the traditional view. The Carlings were in shambles, like, three generations after him. There, there was a disastrous succession crisis, like, probably one of the biggest... In CK2 terms, gavel kind fuck ups that has ever happened <laughs> in all of European history. And, uh, you know, it collapsed. That's dynasties rise and collapse. And history kind of has this natural up and down, I feel like, that CK2 encourages you to subvert in forcing you to think about your, your run is your dynasty. Whereas I kind of, I prefer to kind of think of it like what you were just saying, like your run is more of the world that you're playing in and you can go and, you know, make your mark on different little corners of this world, you know, over time. And I think that that's something that probably a lot of people who have played CK2 
as long as we have naturally start to gravitate towards just to have something different to do instead of forming the world spanning empire of Britannia for the fifth time, except this time it with Satan because the new expansion came out and I wanted to try out those mechanics. I, it's, it's fine though. Cause I still call it, you know, when people ask me to describe it, I still talk about the dynasties and things like that, but really it, it's a, uh, it's a kind of a very much character focused RPG with permadeath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a great way to play. Uh, and I, I think maybe for CK3, maybe that's another thing they're, they're going to look at, that it's actually going to be more of a focus on character. Yeah. But that actually brings me to, to the one of the things I wanted to, to talk about quickly before we wrap up. Um, it, it's turned, it turned five years old in February. Uh, mm-hmm. Which makes it like what old enough to start school? Um, it's funny. I've been I've been playing Crusader Kings longer than I was in high school. That, that's always <laughs> a weird thing to think about. I think it was actually the first game I got like uh, like paid to review like as a job. Yeah, it was my first like professional review, maybe. Um, and so so it's got about what ten thousand expansions or some other really high number. Is expansion fatigue starting to set in? Is there anywhere else for CK2 to go? Is there anything else that you... Any other place where you want it to go? Or are you ready for the next CK? If I had to pick, like, if if I was, you know... If I became Frederick Wester somehow... <laughs> and I was like, you You're have to sign up... You're both equally good at karaoke, so... <laughs> it's true, yeah. We're, we're uh, yeah, we are. Um, I, if I had to sign a piece of paper today that says, we're going to allocate funding to Crusader Kings 3... Or two more CK2 DLC, and you have to pick one or the other. I would say just move the team over to CK3. I think I'm ready for that. I have had conversations with Henrik Freyas, Doom Dark, as you may know him, about things he would like to do in a in a potential CK3. Uh, obviously, no confirmation that this is actually happening. This was all in hypotheticals, and I think he has some very cool ideas in that regard if they were to let him make it and i think that i think it's about time i think if they haven't started work on it already it's about time to start work on it now so they can announce it next year and maybe release it the year after that and we'll have had seven years of this really cool game uh to enjoy and that's that's about when i i'd be feeling like it's time for a sequel so i mean ck1 got one expansion (laughs) yeah um and most of the previous eus got what three two three expansions you know something like that i think eu3 got three expansions right yeah yeah i think three or three or four maybe yeah there was the napoleon one there was the asia one and i think there was one other one yeah so this is by far the most support uh paradox have ever given a game and it's impressive the the dlc i think there's a lot of it that i was kind of a bit mixed on, bit of yeah. a lukewarm reception, but I think every piece of DLC does add something that has fleshed out the game and made it, even if just a little bit, better. Uh, well, and I think we've we've talked on the show before about old paradox versus new paradox. I would say old paradox has a hard stop at like Hearts of Iron three, and then like a soft stop at CK two. Like Victoria two and CK two, in my mind, are like the transition between Old Paradox and New Paradox. And like EU four forward, that is we are firmly in New Paradox. And I think that CK two is still 
built on a foundation of certain old paradox ideas and ways of doing things that are really holding it back from being everything it could be. Back to my famous metaphor about, you know, making a really cool car and then trying to figure out if we can turn it into an airplane. And I would much rather see a new CK or new Crusader Kings game or whatever they want to call it. Honestly, Henrik has said he regrets calling it Crusader Kings because it's about it's a, a limiting title, isn't it? Because it, yeah. it's not a Cru- it's not Crusader Kings. It's right. It's so much more than that. And it was kind yeah. of the same in the first game. It wasn't really all about Crusader Kings. No. Um, yeah, I think I think a new Crusader Kings game with new paradox foundations and sort of. Uh, a focus that is informed by the lessons learned by Crusader Kings 2 and just by Paradox growing as a company and growing in its game design philosophy, you know, from EU4 going forward would be a lot better game, even potentially on day one, than Crusader Kings 2 could ever be, even with three or four more expansions. Yeah, I'm... I'm- I'm right there with you. I completely agree. I would love to see what Paradox could do with a... I, I don't want to say kind of clean slate because everything that they've built in CK2 is, is worthy of yeah. being remembered and there are a lot of good bits that need to be in a sequel. Yeah. Um, but just maybe not laden with so many years of development, a little bit of a fresh perspective. Yeah. Um, especially now that... Because we're seeing a lot of experimentation in like Stellaris and Hearts of Iron 4 as well. Um, and I, can, I really want to see what this paradox does with a new CK. Um, oh, yeah. And even just to, to be really petty, CK2 and Victoria 2 uh, are not quite as easy on the eyes five years later as they were at launch. And they sure. weren't the prettiest games then. And when I play EU4 or Hearts of Iron... Especially with like all the new unit pack updates they've done for EU4 to keep it looking fresh over the course of the expansions. It's like, man, these games look really pretty. I wish we had a Crusader Kings game that looked this pretty. Stellaris especially is a beautiful game. So folks, that's uh, that's it for my, my temporary hosting gig. Uh, I've got a little bit that I wrote down to pretend to be Rob again. The little, <laughs> the little outro that Rob does. I was gonna, I was practicing Rob's accent, but I can't do it. I can't do an American accent. I sound even sillier than I do with my weird Scottish <laughs> accent, which is hard. We should, have I, a, we should have a contest to see who sounds sillier: you doing an American accent or me doing a Scottish accent. You know, get a few pints in me and I'll I'll try it. But I'm not going to do it when I'm recording a podcast. I embarrass myself okay. enough. All right, time for, for Rob's outro. <laughs> uh, Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show or discuss this episode with our community on threemovesahead.net and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is sponsored by listeners just like you, you lovely, lovely people on Patreon. And you can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. We will be back next week with another episode and hopefully a more competent host. But until then, (laughs) from TJ and myself, good night.